Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis is... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And joining us from Jefferson City is... I'm State Representative Chris Kelly from Columbia. Well, thank you for joining us. A Democrat. A Democrat, yes. Thank you, Joe. And as we were talking about before the show started, you, you have one of probably the more interesting histories behind any of the representatives. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I served in the Missouri House for 12 years in the 80s and 90s um, before there were such things as term limits and also when there were large Democratic majorities. This time back, I was out of the legislature for a while being a judge and um, my therapy failed, so I came <laughs> back to the legislature. Um, and I came back into a Republican-dominated body, also with term limits. And I've tried to take kind of an intellectually dispassionate look at serving both in the minority and in a, um, a term-limited environment, as distinct from the bad old days before we had term limits. The bad old days. So are, are you a fan of term limits or not a fan of term limits? I'm, I'm not a fan of term limits. Um, my experience is that people elected now are every bit as smart and every bit as committed as we were in the bad old days, but they just don't have enough time and grade. There are just too many things that they don't know, and there's too much of a transfer of power from the people that are actually elected to unelected folks, um, bureaucrats, lobbyists, staff people. And, but there's a group that I was not aware of that would, whose power would increase, and that's the political parties. Um, and I, I did not perceive that until I came back. And the way you see that is in caucuses. The, in the bad old days, we almost never caucused, and when we did caucus, it didn't mean anything. Um, because no one in their right mind would allow the political parties to tell them what to do legislatively. Now the, the Democrats and Republicans caucus all the time and actually pay attention to their political parties, and that's almost always a bad thing to do. Now, um, one of the things that, that you were known for years ago when you were in the General Assembly was your knowledge about the budget. And if, and it seems like uh, since you've been in the House the second round, there have been a number of major players, Republicans as well as Democrats, who have looked upon you for some, if not guidance, at least some history. Um, is there anything, I mean, aside from the uh, your colleagues' potential lack of knowledge because they're not there long enough. Are there any key issues that you think have more resonance now than they did the first time around and vice versa? Well, part of the lack of institutional knowledge is a lack of, of procedure. I take very seriously the, the inherent tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch, and it matters to me not at all that I'm serving at the same time as a Democratic governor. I believe that tension is vital to the well-being of a democracy and am very jealous of legislative prerogatives. But many of my colleagues who have not been around very long 
they share that generally, but they don't know how that manifests itself specifically. And if I've made any contribution, I believe and I hope it has been to help find ways to resist the virtually constant effort of the executive to expand its power base into what I think of as appropriate legislative turf. What are those areas? Well, some examples would be um, Jay Nixon is an extremely talented and very hardworking and very experienced political guy. He knows how the budget works, and he has constantly found ways, legal ways, to, for instance, take advantage of ease in the budget. And E is an estimated line which allows spending greater than the um, than the amount appropriated, or um, uh, flexibility that the legislature has to give the executive in certain areas. And Nixon's been a master at at using those areas to transfer power um, to the executive um, for reasons that he thinks are completely appropriate, but I think are too much power in the in the executive and not enough in the people who are elected to um, to limit the government. Well, I have a more general question because I remember talking with you a few months ago about your experience in the 80s, and you told me that then-Governors Bond and Ashcroft were very collaborative on big legislative issues, such as the the bond issue that uh, then-Governor Bond worked on. It's been kind of a constant complaint of Republicans that Nixon is kind of disengaged from the legislative process. I guess it's a two-part question. Is that actually true? And do you think that if it is true, that might be some of the problem, that might be part of the problem in the legislature of getting big things done? First, I would say that Bond and Carnahan tended to be much more collaborative, although Ashcroft was more collaborative than Nixon. On a scale, you'd put Bond and Carnahan high on the collaborative scale and um, Nixon at the very bottom of the collaborative scale. There's other areas where Nixon has been an excellent governor, and that's a matter of style. But in terms of collaboration with the legislature, he's been um, almost an aggressive opponent of doing it. And I think it's harmful. But that's because I believe in the concept of, of working together to get things done. Some people think it's better to make executive decisions and, and get on with it. So we're going to get into a few issues now. We're going to go from the tax cut to the criminal code rewrite to some bond issues. But Joe, start us off here. There's about uh, a $4 billion disagreement over the income tax cut bill. Set the stage for okay. us. Okay. Yes. And I'd love to, I can't wait to hear the representative's interpretation of this. Because he is a former judge. Yes. So what's happened is that this year, uh, the General Assembly has put a tax cut measure on the governor's desk. Deja vu. Yeah, deja vu from what happened last year, but there's some key differences. Um, last year, they did it near the end of the session, so the governor spent all summer campaigning against it. And then uh, he was able to prevail during the override session. This time, because the tax cut measure was passed fairly early, uh, the result is that he has 15 days 
from when it was put on his desk, so he has until May 1st to take action, and then the General Assembly can act, either override or sustain his veto before the session ends on May 16th. Now, that's the backdrop. Now, as last year, he has some key objections and says there's some key flaws in the tax cut bill. Now, there are different flaws last year than this year, so without belaboring it, the point is is that his administration, backed by at least one prominent law professor, say that there is a fatal flaw in this bill and that there's a sentence. Okay, the bill lowers all tax rates uh, for individuals by about half percent. It phases in a half percent uh, reduction to 5.5 percent from the current six uh, percent. Uh, it also cuts business uh, taxes by about 25%. Now, all of this is phased in. I don't want to bore with the details. But what they're pointing to is a sentence in the bill that, in effect, they say – well, in effect does state. I'll, I'll read it right, right now. Okay. The bracket for income subject to the top rate of tax shall be eliminated once the top rate of tax has been reduced to five and one-half of a percent. Right. And what what the governor's office and some allied lawyers are saying is that that means that there would be no income taxes at all on any on anything over nine thousand dollars, any income over nine thousand dollars, which would, in effect, uh, eliminate about 65 percent of the state's uh, general revenue. And they say would would just be extremely destructive because that's uh, extremely destructive and eliminate most money available for services, school aid, what have you. Okay, so that's the backdrop. Uh, the governor's office has rolled out. Um, there's at least one prominent law professor here from Washington University, Susan Block, who has said that that sentence does cause a problem. She says, I'm not getting into intent. I'm just saying that sentence is there, and this would cause a court fight. Uh, the um, the Republican leaders have brought up a former uh, state Supreme Court Justice Ray Price, who has who has not necessarily talked about that sentence, but says that any judge looking at the overall bill would say he that, talks about intent. Right, right, right. He says that the judge would definitely see that wasn't the intent, and that that wouldn't happen. So, Representative Kelly, what's your take on all of this? I think that there is no ambiguity. I believe the sentence means without any reasonable doubt. It's a mistake, and it means that if the bill is enacted, all taxable income for any taxpayer above $9,000 would be eliminated. You think there's no ambiguity there? None. But let's assume, I mean, it says shall be eliminated. I think it's a straight out error and a serious error. Was it an error of intent, or what happened, do you think? Some people believe that it is intentional. Um, Rex Singfeld has for a long time tried to abolish the income tax in the state of Missouri. This effectively gets it done. This removes 97% of the income tax in the state of Missouri. Now, there's two two questions I have. This was placed on an amend as an amendment to the bill by Senator John Lamping of of uh, St. Louis County. And if you read the rest of the verbiage in this amendment, it's it's aimed at tying um, the tax brackets to inflation, which is a, a a big issue of Paul Kurtman, who we had on the show a few months ago, a and, Republican, in the and house. it's a big issue of him. 
could it possibly be interpreted that the bracket that's eliminated is the static 9,000 bracket, and then that's then replaced with a fluid bracket that goes up and down with inflation? You can very reasonably say that that was their intent, but you can't as reasonably say that they got it done. Um, and in, a question of legislative intent is cr- crucial here. In the Congress of the United States, courts can measure legislative intent. But the rule for many years in Missouri has been legislative intent is measured only by the words of the statute. Mm -hmm. And the words of the statute are shall be eliminated. And the rule of construction here is that when a tax statute is ambiguous – the statute will always be interpreted or construed in favor of the taxpayer and against the taxing authority. That's a good rule. Yeah, that's, in this, yes, that's in what this Professor case, Block said too. Yeah, in this case, that means that you, the challenging taxpayer, would on a, on any, a tie will always go to the taxpayer is what it means. And that means we will lose the 97% of all income tax paid. We, the state government. Now, the governor has, when he was barnstorming the state yesterday, he basically said this could either have been an error or it was an intentionally put in at the behest of Rex Singfeld, as you kind of alluded to just now. Well, the governor came out and said it in Kansas City. and I've yeah. got But here's start. my question about this. I mean, I don't know whether that's the case. And the governor didn't put forth any evidence. And the person that put forth this amendment, John Lamping, has never taken a donation from Rex Singfeld. I don't think Rex Singfeld is very pleased with his advocacy against historic tax credits or low-income housing tax credits. And he's opposed to the transportation tax, which is being pushed by Steve Tilley, the former House Speaker who's very close to Rex Singfeld. So don't you think if Rex Singfeld was engineering this, he would have picked somebody more close to him to actually enact this? Yeah, that's all evidence for and against the concept that Singfeld is the mastermind behind this. And I think that's completely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Correct. I think the only question that's relevant is what do the words shall be eliminated mean? Do they mean shall be eliminated? Now, at the uh, there was a news conference yesterday afternoon, and House Speaker Tim Jones, who of course is very supportive of this tax cut proposal, as is uh, Majority Leader John Deal, who and both of these gentlemen from the St. Louis area for our listeners, and Deal has already been picked as the next speaker. Uh, both of them, of course, defended the tax cut, but they didn't really get into. And this is interesting because they're both lawyers. They didn't get into the legal argument. Other than when Deal was pressed at some point by reporters there about the issue, he said that they were not going to engage in what he called a game of whack-a-mole and that he, he said as soon as they deal with this, there would be some other objection. Um, so the bottom line is, though, do you sense that there's any going to be any effort by Republican leaders in the General Assembly to either pass a revised bill that doesn't have the sentence or do something to address this? Or are they going to try to um, block a likely veto without dealing with this sentence? I Right now, the mentality is that the Republican leadership wants to throw down. I think they believe they can win on the veto override. But for them to do that, it means in the House, it means that at least one Democratic House member has to vote with them and against the governor. 
Yeah. And also against the absolutely unified school community. When I say school, I mean everything from kindergarten through law and medical school. The colleges, the elementary and secondary school people are all absolutely allied because even if this interpretation is incorrect, the bill is still very, very bad for public education in the state of Missouri. Now, and this might be kind of an odd question because you have been prone to depart from your party on some issues. And obviously, I don't think that there is like an absolute lockstep litmus test on everything that Democrats do. But the one Democrat that voted for this tax cut was Jeff Rorta of Jefferson County. Who is now running for the state Senate. Who's running for the uh, state Senate and who voted for the tax cut the last time around. And I'm just wondering if there's been any blowback or, or backlash against him for continually voting for these types of bills that the governor has been strenuously opposed to and whether there's going to be any kind of backlash against his, his, his political future or state Senate bid. I don't know. Rorty is one of the most competent people in the legislature. Um, just yesterday, um, Jeff Rorty did something. It caught a, a mistake in another bill, a mistake that I, by the way, helped to create. Oh. Um, and he was absolutely right uh, when he caught it. He's, he works hard. He's astute. And um, I'm sure he's got good reasons for this. Now, the, but the fact of the matter is there is a fatal flaw in this bill. And Rorta voted against the previous tax bill also because – not because it was a tax decrease, but because the bill had technical flaws. Amazing. The last bill was a train wreck. Mm-hmm. You and mean see, this session, you mean? You mean 253 in right. the okay. last fall. OK. All right. Um, and Republicans all privately admit that the last bill was a train wreck. And that's one of the problems they have here. They're, they have, they're in the unenviable position of saying, yes, the last, last tax bill we wrote was incredibly incompetent. And then having Nixon find incompetency in this bill and them trying to say, yeah, well, we weren't incompetent in this bill. That's a hard argument to make. I mean, now, when Rorta voted for this bill, of course, that was before the fatal flaw was discovered. So my my things, I haven't talked to him, so it may be unfair to even be discussing how he's going to view it. But could it be that he might take a different tax since this is uh, a more dramatic flaw, arguably, than the problems last year? And um, uh, especially the the lines seem to be more stark this time. I guess that's my my point. Last time there was about uh, there was 15 um, House Republicans who defected from their party and sided with the governor. Um, it's unclear yet if if any of those people would do it again uh, or what sort of pressure is going on from the schools. What are you hearing? What are you seeing since this flaw has started hitting the um, gaining the attention of schools and other groups? We haven't seen the effect of the education lobby yet moving any votes. Uh, And the Republican leadership is being extremely adamant with their people about this. Um, But I think that the facts at some point may become important to some Republicans. They may just read this for themselves and say, regardless of what my leadership thinks politically, this is a very very dangerous error in a tax bill. You know, at some point, you'd wonder why the Chamber of Commerce continues to have confidence in the Republicans writing tax bills when year after year, they're 
sloppy. The best thing you can say for this bill is that it's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't write ambiguous tax bills. Now, is this going to be sort of – I mean, when I wrote a story at the beginning of the session, so did Jason. We wrote stories about what would be the big issues, and of course it was Medicaid expansion and all this other stuff, uh, and some of which has been big. But now that the tax cut bill is sort of landed with a thud, is is there a chance that this is just going to uh, block out the sun on any other major legislation for the next few weeks till the session ends? Or, or do you think people will just – start dealing with other stuff and waiting to see what the governor does. What do you, what do you think is going to happen? I just don't know. Um, and there's, it's, that's a very hard thing to tell um, because it, it it's like cutting trees. You know, if you cut them, they fall the wrong way, and you don't know how this tree is going to fall yet. Um, I think that we'll, the, the criminal code is going to move forward. Yeah. unaffected by this. And that was going to be the yeah. – we were about to transition into yeah, that. Yeah, that was my – that's what I was getting at. Because uh, Representative Kelly has been one of four legislators who have been instrumental in this arduous process of, of, of rewriting the criminal code. The others have been Joey Justice of Kansas City, a Democrat, Stan Cox of Sedalia, a Republican, and Bob Dixon of Springfield, a Republican – now, before we go into that issue, kind of just explain why the criminal code needs to be revised and kind of in general, because it's a 700 or 1,000 page bill, what the, the principles behind it are. Okay. For a long time, the Missouri Bar, both the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, have contended accurately that Missouri's criminal code is terribly out of date and disjointed. And that happens – it's true, and it happens because over a 40-year period, every year the legislature makes changes in the criminal code, but they don't do it in any systematic manner. And so what started out 40 years ago is a pretty rational, well-organized criminal code has over 40 years effectively eroded. Entropy has been at work here on the criminal code, and it's got places – sections in all different statutes, and and it's a mess. So the bar, Missouri Bar, did a five-year study of the criminal code and made a a recommendation to the legislature three years ago. For three years now, um, Stanley Cox has been leading the effort in the House and Bob Dixon and Jolie Justice in the Senate to revise, to adopt this new reorganized criminal code. And primarily what it does is it took all the criminal law and rewrote it into a unified system, um, creating, for instance, a fifth and much more minor felony. Um, but it, has, it doesn't have a lot of philosophical content, but it has a little. Mm-hmm. For instance, it lowers the penalty for possession of marijuana at the very lowest levels, less than 10, 10 grams, down to a no-jail fine. Um, it also strengthens some of the laws for uh, various kinds of child endangerment or abuse. Um, but it reorgan- it pr- it's primarily a reorganizational tool. And as Jason says, it's huge. It approaches 1,000 pages now. But it was vetted by the bar for five years. We've had it in committees and in interim committees for three years now. The, the four of us, Cox and, and – um, Dixon and 
Jolie Justice and myself have been working on it for a long time, as have interim committees and subcommittees. At the very last minute, effectively, about six weeks ago, the governor decided that he didn't want to sign it and said, break it into parts. You can't do that because when you reorganize something, it's a unified whole, and that would mean passing it over several years. The chances of the parts not fitting together are very much greater if you pass it in different segments. Plus, Justice Cox and I are all leaving the legislature this Mm -hmm. year. There's no one with the institutional memory to deal with this except Dixon remaining. Um, So for a lot of technical and internal reasons, it's a bad idea to not do it now. Um, And we believe that it's the correct bill to pass. Um, The prosecutors are on board. The defense attorneys are on board. The the, uh, domestic violence people are on board. The sheriffs, the... the, um, all the whole law enforcement community and the defense community is on board. Literally, Governor Nixon's the only opponent, and he doesn't have specific objections. He's just generally concerned about the size. Is so, it because he's concerned about potential errors in it, like in the tax bill? Yes, he is concerned about potential errors, but that means that he just needs to get to work and do his job. He's fond of telling other people to roll up their sleeves. Well, it's time that he did that. He's saying he can't review it. But I ask the listeners to remember that just a few months ago, he was able to review the entire Boeing proposition, which was bigger than this and more financially complex than this in a weekend. And yet he knows criminal law. He was the attorney general for 16 years. So, so far, it's it's just him expressing concerns. Do you think that if you actually pass this 1,000-page bill that he would actually veto it, or do you think that right now he's just expressing his concerns? I, he's, the threat to, to veto is, is very real and very strong, and effectively, we don't care. We, ha- we know that we have the votes to override his veto, and we'll do so. If he, if he, now, we're willing to talk to him. We have said all along, Governor, please give us your concerns. We'll fix anything you perceive as a problem, and we'll listen to you about any philosophical issues that you have. But he has not given us any information. He's only kind of wrung his hands about the whole thing. And you tell me that you feel like his objections are essentially platitudes and not very specific, and... N- and he's never given us a single specific. Yeah, yeah. Do you think? And this- we've all, all of us, have individually and as a group, literally begged him to do so. Yeah, you know, it was his uh, general counsel put out, or when he was talking to reporters on the tax cut, said, and I'm I'm quoting Eli Yokely here because I wasn't there that. He, appara- yeah. he apparently doesn't do bill review while legislation is in process. Now, notwithstanding that he's threatened to veto the school transfer bill because of a very specific provision in there, I mean, number one, is is that really accurate that he doesn't do bill review or review things while it's in process? And do you think that's of a good thing? Of course it's not accurate. Oh, you don't think so? No, there's no chance that he doesn't maybe do formal bill review. But he there's... You can't swing a dead cat in his office without hitting lawyers. (laughs) Um, 
And he's saying he doesn't have enough law- competent lawyers to get this work done. Well, we want a list of which ones are the incompetent ones because in a couple a year or two, he's going to appoint most of them to judges. And we want to know which ones are incompetent. <laughs> That's a fair, a fair thing. Now, the other thing that you've been heavily involved in for a few years is bonding. And, um, and, and for our listeners, bonding is kind of the term that we use. I mean, that's a really obvious statement. But to, to essentially the state borrows money to undertake a whole bunch of public works projects. Tell me a little bit about your involvement in that and what you kind of want to see from uh, this bonding situation. Throughout, Missouri has, first of all, a tremendous backlog of huge repair and maintenance and new construction issues. The state has not taken care of its infrastructure for a long time. And the poster child for that is the Fulton Mental Health Hospital. It's in terrible shape. And for six years, I have been trying to get the governor and the legislature to perceive our need to take care of our new construction backlog and our repair and maintenance backlog. I've gotten no support at all from the governor on this. I've gotten very good support from Republicans. Um, Ron Richard, who was the speaker, helped with this. Steve Tilley helped with this. And Tim Jones helped with this. Um, And there's some reasons for that. It's a good – during the recession is an excellent time to borrow money. Any big corporation would do it. Interest rates are very low. um, And we are – debt-to-income ratio is very low, and there's a lot of people out of work. Plus, the things that we would construct, the Fulton Hospital, uh, Cortex um, facilities in St. Louis, the engineering school in Columbia, the medical school in Kansas City, these are all things that will produce long-term benefit to the economy going much further than their immediate benefit of the, the um, shot in the arm to the economy you'd get from the construction itself. Uh, and these are the kind of things that we ought to be doing for our economy. Cortex and the engineering school fit precisely into the entire Missouri STEM concept of we need to strengthen our scientific and medical research capacity. Um, the governor was completely disinterested in any of this stuff. Um, Why? For for five years, because it, there was a, I don't know why, I can't make a window into his soul, but he was, I think that it was because he didn't want to be, appear to be on record for debt until his election was over. Mm-hmm. Once his election was over, he all of a sudden decided that the Fulton Hospital was important to fix. The, I'm glad that he's come to that realization, but I've been trying to fix Fulton for six years now. And he's been pretty disinterested. Yeah. Um, I think we'll do Fulton this year, but I believe we should do more than Fulton. We have big repair and maintenance backlogs. We ought to do something with Cortex in St. Louis. We've got Benton Sadler at UMSL, uh, St. Louis Community College. Um, the There's a big science building in Springfield that ought to get done that's been hanging fire for more than 10 years. These are the things that a rational state interested in its economic development does. Mm-hmm. Now, to kind of potentially build on your point about the governor's view on this, I'm just going to quickly read part of a press release that he put out after the tax cut was passed. He said, with four weeks left in session, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the actions the legislature has taken so far this year and the values those actions reflect. 
In this session, the majority in the legislature has voted to raise sales taxes on Missourians, which is a reference to the one-cent transportation tax that passed the House, voted to borrow money for unnecessary building projects, which I believe is a oblique reference to bonding, allowed wa- wasteful tax credits expenditures to continue unchecked, which is a reference to you know the historic tax credits and the low-income tax credits. Which, yeah. And again and again launched an all-out attack on public education in our state, which is a little bit more general. Those first three things, though, are things that a lot of Democrats like yourself support. So in in trying to, like, make a point about Republican priorities, has the governor also just basically spat on a lot of issues that people like you have been working hard for for a few years? Yeah, and his message is entirely political. You can tell that by the language he chooses. Everyone in the universe is against, quote, unnecessary building projects. But who, I ask you, is against Cortex or the engineering school or the medical school? When you put specific names on that stuff, the public perception changes radically. And the reason, if he were for those things, he'd be naming them, wouldn't he? But when he's opposed to them, he doesn't name them. He calls them, quote, unnecessary building projects. With regard to tax credits, many of us agree with the governor on tax credits, but it's also interesting that every time the governor wants to do something for economic development, it involves tax credits. So he's against them generally, and like we're all against them generally, and we're all for them specifically. Hmm. When you name the individual, people are against tax credits, but they love the tax credit for the battered women's shelters, for instance. So we're running a little bit low on time here, and you probably have to get to the House in about 10 minutes. Uh, this is going to be— uh, They don't care much about what I think. Uh, that's that's fair to say. This is going to be— You are I not, think that's not fair to say. I think uh, they do. I think <laughs> that they do. You, you decided not to run for another term basically because of redistricting and a whole bunch of other things. You've left open the possibility of running for the Senate if Stephen Weber of Columbia decides not to run in 2016, though I think that's a strong possibility. Um, if this is your last year in the legislature, you know, what do you think you've learned in this last stint in, in the House, and what do you hope to do next? Uh, what I hope to do next is read Pete the Cat to my granddaughter <laughs> uh, more often. Um, uh, my granddaughter, by the way, who's two years old and owns me, mm. you know, and she uses me constantly so as a weapon against my daughter. So she supplanted um, the grand champion grandbaby Sam. Oh, yes. We've forgotten all about Sam now that we have Emmy. Yeah. <laughs> the, the second, the newest grandbaby is always the most important one. Um, no, they're both great. Um, really, um, A, there's the redistricting problem, but B... It has gotten a little crazy. We spend way too much time dealing with things that don't matter, Sharia law, Agenda 21, lunatic gun bills, um, rather than taking care of our infrastructure, funding public education, dealing with our health problems, the things that people send us here to do. And at some point, I'm 67 years old. I am kind of get tired of that. Mm. You would rather read Pete the Cat to your granddaughter than deal with that sort of stuff. do another Sharia law bill. Exactly. (laughs) And you need more free time to to work on your tweets, right? (laughs) That's right. 
and and to talk about the time Tashara Jones' son threw up on you on the freshman <laughs> that, tour bus. That's right, that, for which I still blame her. <laughs> Although you said on Twitter that you think she'll be governor one day. I'm not mistaken. I hope she is. Tashara Jones is, I believe, the odds-on favorite to be the first African-American statewide elected official in the state of Missouri. I think she's a very, very fine public figure. You heard it here, folks. You, you've heard it here first, folks. So, <laughs> okay. Well, we'll close this out here. Uh, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read Joe's story about the income tax cut bill. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow the representative on Twitter. What's your Twitter representative? Oh, Rep C Kelly. Very good. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long. So long. Bye bye.